Father in heaven, you know each of us better than we know ourselves. You know this last week and how it's gone. You know the anxieties for the, the next week. And so we pray that you would speak to us into our lives, not leaving those things at the side, but would, you, would your voice penetrate all that's happening? Give us ears to hear, soften our hearts. But more than that, by your spirit, would you be changing us more into your likeness for your glory and our good. Amen. There was a time not so long ago in the West, if we're honest, where essentially people pitied Christians. You know the, the story, maybe we're just a bit naive or quirky or quaint or gullible or sort of an unexplainable relic of years gone by. And for whatever reason, faith is the kind of thing that gets some people out of bed in the morning. You know, you like sports or running and I like singing hymns and so I come to church and that's what the world seems to think. We enjoy theology. It's a hobby, something to keep us happy. Well, so be it, but don't take it too seriously, they would say. And don't talk to me about it, thank you. I'm happy with what I'm doing. You do your thing and I'll do mine. It seems to me a time is, that kind of time is passing now, and it's not so much that we are to be pitied. Now Christians are to be feared in some sense. What we believe now is increasingly seen as, as dangerous or damaging or dehumanizing. Increasingly, we are at odds with the world around us, at odds with the prevailing culture. And of course, that call to not take it all too seriously has, has never been something we could really swallow, has it? It's always been a temptation and a battle for the believer to just tone things down a bit, just turn the volume down. But the Bible makes it clear the reason for us being different is that the people might see how good our God is, how beautiful he is, how much he's done in our lives, how much he changes things, what it means to be human, what it looks like to be really human. And to keep it down a bit, to not take it too seriously, to, to not be too different, to not stick out too much, Maybe it is a temptation in our hearts, and we know something of that. But actually, as we'll see in our passage for this, this morning, that kind, of, that kind of lukewarmness just doesn't work. This passage is a very stark passage. It seems to me it shows something of the difference of the people of God and the world around them both in how we think and also in how we live. I think that is a helpful thread that joins, if you like, the two halves together. If you look at them, and perhaps as um, they were read for us, you were thinking, why are we looking at this as one? How do they work? I think what unites them is a daily, wholehearted commitment to giving ourselves completely to the right thing, completely to God. That seems to be, I think we'll see, the two halves pulling together in that way. This is a beginning of a sort of hinge section in the letter, if you've been around. Paul is beginning to land his arguments from the first five chapters or so. And so initially, he, he um, urges them, he concludes something of what authentic ministry looks like. Um, drawing some of these threads from the first half and trying to land them um, to make sense for us. 
So the first half, 6 verse 3 to 13, if you're a note taker, is an urging to not think like the world. Do you remember what's been going on? These these opponents of Paul who have the Corinthian ears are clever-looking, wise-sounding, eloquent-speaking, articulate, persuasive, powerful. Maybe there's a momentum behind them. Their ministry seems to be growing. Their influence seems to be growing. It looks even like God might be blessing them. And and Paul, let's be honest, the, the Corinthians are a little bit embarrassed by him now. When you come to think of it, Paul... I mean, he's a nice guy, but he doesn't sound that wise, actually. And maybe his sermons don't sound that great. Maybe words aren't so much his thing. And he seems to always keep getting into trouble. What is it with Paul? There's always a battle going on, always a shipwreck to be recovering from. Maybe, maybe actually God's not blessing Paul so much. Maybe we shouldn't be listening to, listening to Paul, actually. And yet Paul has said, no, this is deliberate. We've, we've worked really hard for it not to be about us, Corinthians. Jesus is the focus. His gospel is the focus. His gospel of, of death and life is the focus. And Corinthians, we've poured ourselves out for you, and we've done it in such a way that you know it's not about us. We, verse 3, we, we put no stumbling block in anyone's past so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And then this glorious outpouring from Paul in the next bit, verse 5 onwards, reminding them of how he's done it, which shows that he is authentic. Again, we'll see he's concluding lots of themes that we've seen already, lots of threads that he's kind of drawing together. But we'll just try and conclude with him. Um, I've tried to group them into three different sections. Um, I think there is a There's a sort of clustering you can do. Verse 4 and 5 seems to be about perseverance. Paul's Paul's not saying he's, he's Hercules, but he has persevered and kept going. He's kept at it through, do you see, through great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work and sleepless nights and hunger. And I think that's provocative in a world like ours. In a world that often isn't able to do those things very well. Often we're not great at persevering for the long haul. We're, we're spiritual sprinters, not ultra-marathon runners. But the Christian life, and maybe particularly Christian ministry, is more like an ultra than 100 metres. It's something I need to keep remembering. Paul is one who perseveres. And actually, maybe for us, we even think something's gone wrong if it is hard work, or if things aren't clicking into place as we would like straight away, or if things do seem to be getting muddled and going the way we didn't expect. Or maybe we're tempted to think, well, because we're facing opposition and pain, then something, again, something's not right, rather than the fact that something actually is right. Friends, I think this will work its way out in all kinds of ways in a room like this, all kinds of contexts. At the most basic level, we're to be those who faithfully plod. That's the Christian life in one sense. Day by day, week by week, month by month, we're plodders. We press on regardless. We keep at it. 
And I have to say, there are particular individuals in this room, some who aren't able to be here because of frailty, and actually it's great that Gwyneth prayed for them already, but who, who exemplify that kind of plodding over months and years and decades at Magdalen Road. Some who can't be here because of frailty. I'm humbled because you can, you can read through minutes from meetings from decades gone by, maybe when perhaps Magdalen Road was down to a handful of people, and there are names on them like, uh, like Lever or Hennegolf or Reed or Vickers or Bamford and others who just plodded and kept on and kept on and kept trusting the Lord and kept praying and kept speaking and kept laboring, kept persevering, as Paul would say. They're the ultra-marathon runners where the rest of us are good at sprinting, or maybe not even that good at sprinting. Or maybe even so many of our toffs. Or maybe folk who have got here early this week and do every week to set up. Actually, I can say it because Paddy's not here today because he's on honeymoon. But Paddy is here most Sundays beforehand to set up on various teams, serving in various ways. Or maybe those who are not in this room now because they're looking after our kids out the back, teaching the children, lovingly serving them. A number of you will be on those teams as well. It might not be beatings, imprisonments and riots. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Maybe some weeks. Um, but actually, great endurance, troubles, hardships, distresses, hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. It's getting the prep done. It's staying up late to read through the passage again. It's preparing craft and cutting things out or sorting out the glue or doing things that we might not really want to be doing because we're persevering, because we care about the Lord and his people. Maybe. Or maybe even it's not just the sort of formal ministry things that we can point to. Maybe actually the perseverance is just behind the scenes relational service. The, the real stuff of church in one sense. Visiting someone who's struggling. I'm cooking food for the family who, for whatever reason, have got too much going on and they can't um, cook. Actually, I think if the Hutchings, I say that as well, the Hutchings would be a great example. Who do they speak to? Ellie Sharp. If you want to help provide food for the Hutchings um, with the um, arrival of Arietti, then please go and speak to Ellie afterwards. She would love to help you serve in that way. Um, maybe even it's wrestling in prayer for people. Maybe that's a way that we can love and serve, and nobody except the Lord might know about that. That's part of the ultra-marathon that is the Christian life, the plodding behind the scenes. Authenticity of faith is not seen in success, but in perseverance. Which seems to be very unlike the opposition of Paul here. If you read between the lines, maybe they were the proverbial sprinters, these super apostles, always looking for the quick fix or the easy buck or the next town to target where they could peddle their, their show and their so-called wisdom and, and move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. But Paul endures and keeps going. So the first one is to think about ministry as perseverance. The second there's an emphasis in verse 6 and 7, I think, on integrity. 
have a look down. In, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. And remember, of course, the Corinthians knew Paul. They had seen Paul up close and personal for 18 months. They knew him. They knew his warmth. They knew his love for them. He had lived with them for an extended period of time. He had, he had poured himself out for them. And so they could look at his life and they could see evidence of God at work in Paul. A quality of life, a, a character that comes from knowing God. Fruit of patience, he says, impurity, kindness and sincere love. But more than that as well, it's as he speaks. Do you remember the the love in Corinth for rhetoric and for things to sound amazing. But for Paul, there is no propaganda or tricks or marketing speech or slippery language or sleight of hand or audience manipulation, or any of that. Who he is and what he says, well, they can trust it. WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get with Paul. And again, he seems to emphasize these things because these so-called super-apostles, inspired by the spirit of the age, the spirit of Corinth, that is what they are all about. Again, there must be a warning and a challenge for us here. What someone is like, up close and personal, or behind closed doors, really matters. Again, you do at times hear horror stories of of gifted individuals, gifted leaders, who, who are amazing behind the pulpit, but get to know them and they are absolute divas. I put it that way. <laughs> On their own, they're a nightmare. But for a Christian leader, any kind of public profile or persona that is divorced from reality, what they're really like, really matters actually why social media can be so unhelpful because you think you know someone but it's actually just been filtered by a team no rather like a, a stick of rock from the um, from blackpool Ple pleasure beach wherever it is you, you snap it and wherever it, you snap it you get the same message whether it's up front whether it's behind closed doors you get this message of integrity that's what ought to be there that's what was there for Paul, and it should be there for those in leadership. Again, there's a bit of a disconnect here from our culture, because currently, as with the Corinthian culture, there can be something of a divorce, it seems, between what you are like with everyone else in front of the proverbial cameras and what you are like on your own. And you see the papers wrestling over this. Just because they're like this on their own, does that mean we can't trust them in leadership? And there's all kinds of things going on there. But for Paul says, no, 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 you need integrity. In front of the cameras and behind the cameras, you're to be the same person. So there's Paul with perseverance, Paul with integrity, and thirdly, with resilience, verse 8 to 10. Here you get in concentrated form the varied experience that Paul had of ministry. The reality of the extremes of frontline ministry. Maybe we need to recalibrate our expectations when you read these. 
Perhaps he was an extreme, but he was an example nonetheless. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. In our kind of language, in our kind of times, Paul's identity wasn't tied up with what he has or how he's doing or what others think of him or how much he has or even his own feelings. Paul is resilient. Paul's value and his confidence comes from the Lord. And so however he's doing, whatever's going on, he, he keeps at it. I take it before you move to the second half, we need to ask the question, how? How is Paul able to do that? How is he able to persevere or have such integrity or or be so resilient? How do we grow in these things? I take it we look to Christ. We, We look to Jesus. It is through him and him alone as he emptied himself of his majesty, his his power and his life, even to curse death on a cross, that we are able to persevere and keep going. Through his death we have life, and this message of life that we take with us. through, Through his being made poor, we have riches, and these riches that we offer to other people, true riches, riches that matter. Through him having nothing, then we have everything. And when we know who we are in him, when we have that security in him, then perseverance, integrity, resilience can grow because we are solid. It's not gone so well, but that's been my homework this last week. To consider more of Christ and to consider Christ more That I might follow in the footsteps of Paul as he followed in the footsteps of Jesus. Maybe that's the kind of thing we can chew over this week. Maybe take a morning, maybe an hour, just to think through the Lord Jesus and how he and his death and resurrection impacts us in different areas of life. So that's the first idea. Paul begins to hit home this first big section in 2 Corinthians. Not thinking like the world when it comes to what gospel ministry ought to look like. Drawing some threads together from chapter 2 to 6. Wanting to recalibrate our perspective. To be less like the world and more like the Lord Jesus in the way that we think. But secondly then, he urges them then in this wholehearted devotion to not live like the world, 6 verse 14 to 7 verse 1. Let me read that second half again. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Balaam? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. 
Therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And maybe it feels like a bit of a gear change. And we're thinking, Paul, you've, you've lost me a little as to how we've got from verse 13 to verse 14. Why do they follow on? We'll get there in a second. Um, these verses are notorious, though. They are used in all kinds of contexts and all kinds of situations down the years. Um, particularly verse 17, come out from them and be separate says the Lord, have over the years been used by all kinds of well-meaning Christian groups and organisations who have a desire to see the church remain distinctive. Um, they've been used in um, prohibiting things like cinema or dancing. They've been used as proof texts as to why Christians ought not to marry non-Christians. They've been used as proof texts as to why it's wrong for churches to be within mixed denominations etc., etc., etc. We're not going to go there particularly, but obviously there are discussions to be had and wisdoms to be gleaned on those and many other matters as well. They are great questions to wrestle with and deal with. What it means to be in the world but not of the world for every generation is a complicated thing and something that Christians need to think through to consider well. Something for us as individuals, for us as a church, more widely, in Oxford. And I think the answers aren't easy. Actually, wisdom is needed. But what about this and here? What did it mean to them? And what does it mean for us? And why does verse 14 come after verse 13? Again, there are lots of different ideas. Often the case, though, when you've got a list of rhetorical questions, as they are here, verse um, 14 and 15 and 16, then the clever thing to do is to look at the last one because often that is the climax. That's the one that packs the punch. That's the one with the, the noise left ringing in our ears. That's where the questions are heading. And if that's the case, which I think it is, then the final punch there is there in verse 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Now remember, by temple, he's not talking about a building anymore, a physical building of bricks and mortar, as the people of God had in the Old Testament. The temple Paul is talking about now is us. It's people. And just as it was out of the question totally to bring an idol into a, into a physical temple in the Old Testament... Also, to bring an idol into the people of God, the new temple is also a total no-no. And so the question is then, what idol is Paul talking about? Now, it could certainly be pagan worship in Corinth. Many of the church will have been converted from pagan backgrounds and been converted to Christ. And so maybe there's a confusion as to what it means now to live as a Christian with that kind of background, with that kind of past. Maybe they're muddled as to what that means. 
In fact, if you know 1 Corinthians, you'll know there's confusion over similar things in chapters 8 and chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians. See, I think in Corinth, well, I don't think, it's right, in Corinth there will have been a huge industry um, built around pagan temple worship. And if you turn your back on that and you start following Jesus, it would have been really costly for you. It would have been costly in social terms, in financial terms, maybe in family terms. And if you wanted to be a part of it all, if you wanted to be in the the crowd in Corinth where you could get things done or make money or their significance or reputation, then you needed to be there. So maybe that was what's going on. Believers who were struggling to say goodbye to old things. They wanted to have their cake and eat it. They wanted to be a part of the new temple in Christ and yet kind of there's a foot in the old temple still. Paul says, no, what what harmony can there be between Christ and Belial? That's another name for Satan. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? So the more I've chewed over it this week, and it's worth saying that not all the commentaries agree at all, but the more I've chewed is what Paul might be doing is saying this. Actually, the idolatry he's talking about is the idolatry of these false teachers, these super-apostles, These super apostles represent the spirit of the age. They live and they think and they speak in Corinthian terms. And as Paul has been saying for six chapters or so, stay away from them, don't listen to them. Here he turns the dial up and really explains why that is a bad thing. If you're listening to them, it's as if you are taking an idol, a Corinthian idol, and bringing it into the temple of God. I wonder if that's what's going on. That certainly seems to make the most sense of how we get from verse 13 to verse 14 and the way he seems to conclude the section next week we'll see in chapter 7. So I wonder if the idolatry that he is warning them of is actually a Corinthian way of thinking that has crept into the church and he's explaining to them in stark terms why that is such a bad thing. Just a couple of thoughts, though, on why this matters and how this applies. I'm I'm aware time is getting on. The first thing to say in terms of an application or just something to chew over perhaps by ourselves or in home groups this week is that the holiness of the corporate people of God really matters. Say that again. The holiness of the corporate people of God really matters. That is, what we do as a church family is important. Actually, it's interesting. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's book talks about individual Christians being temples of God, and what they do with their body matters, particularly in the context there. It's to do with um, sex outside biblical marriage. And maybe in our individualistic culture, we're a bit happier with that. We're easier with that. The concept of self and what someone does in themselves. But here he reminds us of the corporate nature of our faith. He's talking to a people, a temple, A plural temple. Our church body is like a temple, which which maybe has implications for us in our gatherings as we join together. The the worship of Jesus with any other worship, that just mustn't happen. And we say, well, we would never do that. Clearly, we're not going to bring other items from other faiths, perhaps, into our worship. That's not something we would do. 
But actually, it's striking, isn't it? If the idolatry is a kind of Corinthian way of thinking being brought into the body of the church, the life of the church, then maybe it's just the way we dress the Christian faith up in the clothes of the world that matters. That seems to have been what's going on in Corinth. It's letting the world's thinking shape us and how we do worship. And suddenly I begin to feel a bit more uncomfortable. Because I can be far too Corinthian in the way that I think. I reckon you probably can as well. Part of our role is to speak out against the world, not to be a chameleon who blends in. We're to be the annoying misfits who, who ask the hard questions, who make people think, who, who contradict the consensus, who, who challenge the world. But actually easily we just absorb it. We smuggle in the idols of the world and ape them even in church. We're to be distinct and we're to be different, but I wonder sometimes if we're not. That doesn't mean we need to all go and live in monasteries. That's not what the Bible calls us to do at all, but it does mean we're to be different and attractive and distinct in the world, but not of it again. So there's one little thing to chew over. The next one, so the first is the idea of a corporate holiness. The next one is because God's presence is with us. And we need to be slightly careful here, but there's a, there's a sting in the tail. The, the promise that the Lord has made with his people, the church, is that he will really be with them. This is part of what it means to be in the new covenant, as Paul has been explaining week on week, what new covenant ministry looks like. And so he says, verse 16, he will be their God and they will be his people. Leviticus 26 and elsewhere. Or he will be their father and they will be his children. Verse 18, that's 2 Samuel 7 and elsewhere. And that is a beautiful encouragement. As part of being new covenant believers, we have God as our father. He is our God and we are his people. He is drawn near to us, whether we are men or women, we are his children. And for whatever reason, if we're feeling far from him this morning, then maybe that is the truth just to take away. That is the thing to treasure this week. Cling fast to that. You have God as your father. He is good and he loves you. He's got you. You can trust him. And when the whole world is crashing to the floor around us, he's got you. But actually there is a challenge as well. The challenge is where Paul takes these verses. The challenge is Paul's point in this second half. It's a sting in the tail. Maybe others of us need to take note. You see, as his children, we are to live as his children. As those who have been shown grace, we need to live as those who have been shown grace. As members of his family, we need to live as members of his family. And the danger is the Corinthians were not... As they listened in to the super apostles, as they changed how they thought perhaps about what ministry was, then have a look at verse 17. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Again, Paul's quoting from the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah 52 this time, if you see the little footnotes down there. Isaiah's writing to a people in exile 
warning them to leave their city of idols, to gather them all together, but not to touch the unclean items of worship, not to defile themselves, not to be like the world around them. And so 7 verse 1, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Corinthians, be careful with who you're listening to. Be careful with the way that you're thinking now. Be careful with this idolatry as you flirt with these super apostles. If you look and you think and you live too much like the world, you'll end up being indistinguishable. And actually, maybe it turns out you were the world after all. You you can't ride two bikes at the same time. You can't be a believer who still dabbles in idolatry and in being in the temple of the living God and having a footstool in the temples from your past. Is this for you? Maudlin Road, be careful. There'll be some here who have tender consciences. Hear that you are a child of God and he loves you and you are his and he is yours. And rest in that. But I know as well there'll be some deliberately hoping to hedge their bets. To to be in the world and of the world. To be in the family of God, but to not display that family likeness. And I need to say, if that is you, then be careful. In fact, more than that, come back to him. Remember his grace poured out for you. Remember who you are now in him. With his help, live that distinct life that he calls you to. And if you've got it wrong, if you've been trying to ride two bikes and you think you kind of can, but actually you can't, if you know you've mucked up, then come back to him because his grace is always sufficient. He is always good. He is always patient. And he's longing for us to come back to him. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we confess we find these things hard because we so easily think like Corinth. Help us please to see afresh the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the truth about you and what it means to live for you. Help us to be those who persevere. Help us to be those with integrity. Help us to be those who are resilient because we have eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. But guard us too, please, from idolatry. Guard us from thinking as the world thinks. Guard us from shaping the church into the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.